0: Good morning, Crosswalk. Good morning. How are we doing? Good, Good to see <laughs> It always feels so nice. All you introverts should try this. <laughs> Super fun sometimes. Uh, no, excited to have you guys here. Hope you had a great week. Uh, and, and as you come into this space, that you get to experience uh, God's gift to you, his gift of time, his gift of community, where you can just kind of let go of the stress and the worries and the craziness of the week and whatever has been weighing you down and you can enter into this space and sense peace and joy and togetherness. So that is my prayer for you. It's always my prayer for you that you can experience that. And the other thing I pray every morning before I head this way, is that you would catch a glimpse of Jesus, that we would all catch a glimpse of Jesus, because that's what this is all about, is we're here to lift up Jesus so that all would be drawn to him. It's the most important thing. Um, And uh, we had a big week for Crosswalk this last week. Pastor Lydia mentioned it at the beginning um, uh, uh, shortly, but we had a record-breaking week in our work with our friends from PAX, Um, and that was that here uh, on Thursdays, the third Thursday of every month, we serve this community, pass out flyers, let them know we're coming, we work with PAX to bring a food pantry out here. Our previous record of families that we had served in one evening was 18, um, and this last Thursday we served 31. So, both a blessing that we were able to do that, but also an expression of the great need that is out there. Then over at PAX, we had a group working there as well. They served another 24, so it was a total of 55 families Um, that we're able to help. So appreciative of our community partner packs and all the hard work that they're doing. We just get to, you know, tag along once in a while. Uh, And so Laura, thank you for all of that hard work. Super, super good. And Pastor Lydia is looking into even more ways that we can look into how we serve our community so that we, they know we're here and that we are a place that seeks to love really, really well. That's what our community is about. Love well is our one-word mission and vision statement. I say it all the time, but if you're new here, welcome. And we just want you to know what we're about. We think that following Jesus results in loving well. Um, And that means loving God, loving each other, and loving our neighbors. So we are working towards that end. Um, This uh, week, one of our members sent me a picture that I wanted to share with you. Uh, She was on her way home. Um, and happen apparently to be following someone fairly closely. This is Candace King, if you know Candace. She's our prayer and care team litter. But do you follow Jesus this closely? I told her, knowing her well, that I said, You pull up beside that person, roll down your window, and say, Yes, I do. <laughs> so when you go to crosswalk and you follow this person, you do the same thing. If you follow Jesus closely. Anyway, I just loved that. I thought that was great. That, that, that sticker backfires a little bit, depending on who's behind you. <laughs> so, and that is a segue into our sermon series uh, for this week, as we're into our seventh week of exploring uh, what it means to have deep faith. Going through the books of First and Second Timothy the words from the Apostle Paul to Timothy, his mentee, his disciple, his protege, his dear son in the faith, trying to instruct him on how not only to help lead the church, uh, but how to have a deep faith that will sustain him no matter what comes his way. Um, And so he's trying to make sure that Timothy is able to trust in God's version of our story, trust that it's true, and lean on him for whatever he may need. And I hope you've enjoyed the series. We have one more week after this one. At times, it feels like we're drinking from a fire hydrant because there's so many good things. I'm only getting through half of the chapter that we're going through today. That's, that's how much was in there. Uh, but this week, we are in chapter 2 of 2 Timothy, a letter that was written from a dark dungeon in Rome, a dungeon where Paul sat more than likely knowing that he was facing execution, that that would be what happened next. So knowing that his end was coming, he cuts to the chase. He tells the things that matter most, the things that he wants Timothy to be able to hold on to, lean into, and and have as the core of his being, even when times get tough. So our week begins with these words. Timothy, my dear son, Be strong through the grace that God gives you in Christ Jesus. You have heard me teach things that have been confirmed by many reliable witnesses. Now teach these truths to others, trustworthy people who will be able to pass them on to others. Now, Paul does a couple things here. Again, he mentions my dear son. Oftentimes that means he's leaning into telling you something that he really wants you to hear. He really wants Timothy to get this right? And then he says, be strong through the grace that God gives you. Last week we talked about grace. If you were here, man, I cried three times in the sermon. Literal tears coming down my face. So if you felt emotionally manipulated, last week I want to apologize. I felt emotionally manipulated. Spirit was all up in my business doing stuff. So uh, anyways, but, but he's kind of connecting those two ideas, right? And he's, he's getting in, he's reminding him about the grace that's so critical and so important. Um, but then he says that uh, he wants, he, he, you've heard me teach the things that have been confirmed by many reliable witnesses. So Paul again expresses the reality and truths of Jesus and says that these are the most important things one can dedicate their life to learning and sharing with others. But Timothy must have known this, right? I mean, he has dedicated the last 20 years of his life to journeying with Paul and to giving his life for the story of the gospel and for Jesus. So why does Paul need to remind Timothy about this again? Well, for one, Paul knows that in difficult times, we can easily get confused or distracted about that which matters most. Paul, new times of discouragement seem to lurk around every corner. I mean, Jesus was the one that said, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. I have come to give you life. And these things are constantly at battle. And when you seem to hit roadblock after roadblock, when life throws one bad thing at you after another, you can begin to question if what you're doing is the right thing or if it's even worth it. Paul suffered much for the cause of Christ, and I'm sure... Timothy endured some of that with him. As Paul writes, I have worked much harder, been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, and been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and day in the open sea. I have been constantly on the move. I have been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from fellow Jews, in danger um, of sea, at sea, and in danger, oh, I skipped some, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false believers. I have labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I have been cold and naked. Besides everything else, I have faced the daily pressure of my concern for all the churches. Can you imagine this on a job description? (laughs) Become a Christian and here's what you can expect, right? Maybe this is on your LinkedIn profile, okay? But instead, what we often talk about is we talk about the prosperity gospel, or we talk about the vending machine God, that if you get everything right, you just, life is going to get better and better and better and better. But that's not the journey that Paul had taken. And I can only imagine, not only how difficult the road was, but how Timothy was caught up in all of this. I mean, Paul was getting hit from both sides. To the Jews, Paul was a threat because he had said that this Jesus of Nazareth, the one that they killed, was actually alive and not dead. And not only that, that this Jesus was the Messiah they had been waiting for and had been prophesied in the scriptures. They didn't believe he was the Messiah um, because he wasn't the Messiah they wanted. Maybe the one they needed, but not the one that they wanted. And so they did their best to silence the story of his resurrection. To the Romans, Paul was a threat because he claimed that Jesus was the son of God, which was a title saved only for Caesar. Caesar. Not only that, um, the Christians were a threat to the Roman way of life because the Romans and their pantheon of gods, they would worship them and they would pay tribute to them and that's what kept their lives safe and going well and when bad things happened, it's because someone wasn't doing that and of course the Christians only had one God and that was this Jesus and so when bad things happened, they blamed the Christians for not paying tribute to all of the gods. And I imagine in this moment for Timothy, having to think about his mentor and spiritual father in prison alone with the threat of execution, I imagine Timothy was a little more than just discouraged. Maybe he felt like there were more challenges than rewards, more failures than successes. Maybe he even questioned where God was in all this mess and how he could keep teaching the faith when it seemed so often to lead to suffering. Maybe you felt the same discouragement. Maybe you've prayed for years to hear God's voice and you have been met each time with a wall of silence. Maybe you've had a a love in your life who was the rock for your spiritual life who has passed away. Maybe you're facing some difficulties either now or coming that you're not sure how you're going to manage. Maybe you've been struggling with questions of faith and can't seem to get helpful answers. Hard times come for us all. Rain falls on the just and the unjust. God never promises a life of ease, just that he will be there with us every step of the way. And I often think in my worst of times, this song that we sing sometimes in here called Waymaker, the words play in my mind. Even when we can't see it, he's working. Even when we can't feel it, he's working. He never stops. He never stops working. But Paul tells Timothy Endure suffering along with me. Then Paul gives a series of metaphors for Timothy to consider. But let's focus on the word suffering in this chapter for a moment because Paul's going to use it again in just a few verses. He'll say, and because I preach this good news, I am suffering and have been chained like a criminal, but the word of God cannot be chained. I love that line. So I'm willing to endure anything if it will bring salvation and eternal glory in Christ Jesus to those who God has chosen. Those words from Paul chain me up if you will, silence my voice if you will, take my life if you will, but you will never be able to stop the word of God. Paul is not holding back. But Paul's use of the word suffering here is interesting because in the Greek, it isn't just about enduring hardship. You know, when you're suffering from something, when things are going bad in your life, whether you're persecuted for your beliefs or just things seem to be crumbling around you, it can feel lonely. It can feel like no one else knows what you're going through. That's what the devil likes to convince you of, that you're all alone and you're the only one. But in the Greek, the word for suffering has a communal aspect to it. It means to suffer or partake in afflictions alongside of or in company with others that are suffering. And I believe this is important for a few reasons. I mean, one of those is just so that we know that we are not alone, but I also believe it's important because when you think about the manner in which Paul and Timothy and the early Christians were persecuted, it is hard for those of us in the Western world to be able to empathize. We've had it pretty good. We have been able to, uh, we've been free to worship and explore our faith. And though it is shifting, Christian identity and values have been prevalent in our country. Now, I'm sure that some of us would argue we have been persecuted. I mean, we had to wear masks and for a while we couldn't go to church. But I'm not talking about inconveniences and political challenges. I'm talking about suffering. Suffering. I'm talking about life and death situations. I'm talking about being ridiculed and ostracized at the deepest levels because of believing in Jesus Christ in the gospel story. story. Excuse me. But whatever we have endured or will endure in our country, we can know this, that right now we have brothers and sisters in Christ around the world who have been enduring suffering for the faith for a long time. Here is a map showing uh, Uh, Some of the places around the world where Christians are currently facing some of the most extreme or very high levels of persecution. This is for 2022, so it is current. According to the Open Doors website, this past year, 5,898 Christians were killed for their faith. 5,110 churches and other Christian buildings were attacked. 6,175 believers detained without trial, arrested, sentenced, or imprisoned, and 3,829 Christians abducted. Not everyone has it as good as we do, and if you feel so called to suffer with our brothers and sisters in Christ around the world, go to this website. They have all sorts of information and things you can do, and even how you can just pray for them. However you define persecution and suffering, externally or internally, one thing is for sure, we are to endure suffering together. To hold one another up, to remind each other that we are not alone, to pray for those in need, and to pray for those who cannot pray for themselves. But the other thing Paul reminds us of here in this chapter is that in order to endure suffering To be resilient in our faith, no matter our circumstances, we are to remind ourselves and others about the why of our faith. To remind ourselves regularly about who Jesus is, what he has done, and what he has promised to do. For we are to be regularly, constantly, forever grounded in the gospel story of Jesus Christ. And this is important the farther away we get from the actual events, right? Paul knew this, so Paul continued to remind Timothy and others about the story for the times when the truth gets a little bit foggy, or we wonder, did the Jesus story really happen the way that, the way that it's been told? Was it all real or just a figment of our imaginations? Maybe it's really just too good to be true. So Paul reminded Timothy that the story has been confirmed by many reliable witnesses. And he says, always remember that Jesus Christ, a descendant of King David, was raised from the dead. This is the good news I preach. And again, he says, remind everyone about these things. Repeatedly, diving deep into the gospel story and the person of Jesus Christ is Paul's go-to action. When times get tough when there are false teachings and doctrines, when people are pointing their fingers and laughing, Paul drills down even more on who Jesus is. And my favorite example of this comes from a letter he wrote to the Colossians, the church in Colossae. That church was facing internal and external pressures and persecution. And instead of Paul coming in and just addressing all of those and saying, okay, well, we gotta deal with this problem and this problem and this problem and this problem and that problem, instead of doing that, Paul begins the letter with writing one of the most beautiful hymns of Jesus that have been created. Because Paul's opening comments are these. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. Paul faces and confronts challenges and persecution and falsities by drilling down on who Jesus is, by lifting Jesus up in his life, because that is what matters most. So why is reminding ourselves and each other regularly repeatedly about the good news commanded so often? Well, according to a 2018 study, 7% of the world population does not believe in a higher power. Other studies suggest that the number is growing at a faster rate than ever before. And one could say, well, it's only 7%. There's 93% others that do. But 7% is 420 million people that God cares deeply about. Atheists and secular humanists have their reasons for not believing in a higher power or the supernatural. I just read a fascinating book by uh, Tony and Bart Campolo, called Why I Left and Why I Stayed. Tony is a uh, renowned evangelist, sociologist, professor, theologian, pastor. He's done all these things over the course of his life. I've got to meet him and hear him speak. He's just a force for Jesus. And for 30 plus years of Bart's life, he followed in his father's footsteps. But then in his late 30s, he started to realize that for a while, he's been questioning things. And for a while, it's been harder and harder for him to reconcile certain things about God that he just can't accept to be true. And he he struggles with with other things. Basically, he couldn't hold on to the supernatural uh, ideas anymore. And the stories of Jesus were difficult for him to uh, really grasp and understand, even though he likes Jesus. So Bart ended up leaving his former belief system and adopted the faith structure of a secular humanist. Now in the book, it's very respectful conversation between these two. They love each other deeply and they're just processing these things together. So the father and son go back and forth about their core beliefs. Bart continues to be a compassionate soul, caring for those in need, seeking to make a difference in the world. His dad's values and his overlap quite a bit. And when Bart describes the God he could no longer believe in, I realize, as is often the case when I talk to my friends who um, uh, consider themselves atheists, is that I often realize the God they describe as a God they can't believe in is a God I don't believe in either. Uh, A God that would burn people forever, a God who is all-powerful but unwilling to intercede But the part that's hard for me, and I want to be super respectful about Bart's journey, but the part that's hard for me is when he gets to a place where he talks about Jesus in the book, that's where I start to really wrestle. Because you see, Bart likes Jesus a lot. He loves Jesus's focus on social justice, caring for the the people on the fringe, leading a nonviolent revolution, sacrificing and serving others. He loves all those things. He's tried to model his life after those things. Bart just doesn't believe in the supernatural things like Jesus being born of a virgin or the miracles and healings, the raising from the dead part. But here's the truth of the matter. I believe with all my heart that the Jesus story has far more evidence to it than people tend to acknowledge. I've said before that most credible historians believe that Jesus of Nazareth actually existed in history. Most credible historians believe that this same Jesus of Nazareth was actually crucified on a cross. So the question comes is, what happened next? And were the stories told about him true or simply blown out of proportion and made up? So we don't have time to go into all of these. Some of these we've actually talked about recently, but if we take the model of Paul into consideration, then repetition is the key, right? Let me say that again. If we take the model of Paul repetition is the key. Come on, people. (laughs) So here are a few things. Some say you can't rely on the gospel story because it was written so long after Jesus's death. Well, it was written between 20, the, the different four gospels were written between 20 and 50 years after Jesus lived. That is true. But what people don't often think about is that most ancient uh, biographies of historical figures were written generations after that person lived. Not by reliable eyewitnesses that actually were alive during the person's life. That almost is unprecedented. We've talked about the peculiarities around the resurrection story about how if you wanted to make up a story that didn't actually happen in ancient times, like when they were living, you wouldn't have used women as central figures of the story. And yet the resurrection story has women as the main characters. It's one of those things that it's so crazy and against the times that it must have been true. We've talked about how Jesus doesn't leave us room to just refer to him as a a person who had good things to say, who fought for social justice and cared for the poor and taught about love. Like, yeah, he said those things, but he also said he was God. You can't take one without the other. So what do you do with statements like, the father and I are one? Or before Abraham was even born, I am Jesus, in that, used the very sacred name of God to describe himself. And this gospel story lives beyond mere myth or legend, for it is a story that has framed history and culture and timelines. Yale historian Yaroslav Pelikan wrote, regardless of what anyone may personally think or believe about him, Jesus of Nazareth has been the dominant figure in the history of Western culture for almost 20 centuries. If it were possible with some sort of supermagnet to pull up out of history every scrap of metal bearing at least a trace of his name, how much would be left? Then Paul goes on to close out the first half of this chapter with a bit of an exclamation point. He writes, this is a trustworthy saying. If we die with him, we will also live with him. If we endure hardship, we will reign with him. If we deny him, he will deny us. If we are unfaithful, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny who he is. It's an interesting saying because it seems to have a certain rhythm and flow to it until you get to the end right? It begins with two negatives and two positives. If we die with him, we'll live with him. If we endure hardship, we'll reign. But then it goes negative and says, if we deny him, he will deny us. This is harsh. It's even scary a bit, but it echoes Jesus's words in Matthew 10, 33, where he said, but everyone who denies me here on earth, I will also deny before my Father in heaven. So then we'd expect the next line to have another negative, something like, if we are unfaithful, he'll be unfaithful to us, but instead we get the unexpected. The formula changes. If we are unfaithful, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny who he is. Even when we are unfaithful, God cannot deny himself and who he is. He is an always faithful God, forgiving us, chasing after us, dying for us, even when we're running the other way. This line even seems to go against the, if we deny him, he'll deny us, because he can't deny himself. How can we, we we can deny him, but does a faithful God leave us be? Perhaps we have only to look at the story of the apostle Peter for our answer. For at the trial of Jesus before his crucifixion, you know the story well. Peter denies knowing Jesus not once, not twice, three times. The third time, Jesus and Peter locked eyes, and he still said, I don't know the man. Peter abandoned Jesus in his greatest time of need. So in our way of approaching things, if we take Jesus' words from Matthew 10, at face value, then because Peter denied Jesus, then Jesus will deny Peter. But what happened in Peter's situation after Jesus was resurrected? The angels told the women at the empty tomb, Don't be alarmed, he said. You are looking for Jesus, the Nazarene, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Well, why did they need to say, go tell the disciples and Peter? Wasn't Peter a disciple? I'm guessing that after he denied Jesus to his face, He didn't feel like a disciple anymore. He felt that now he was on the outside. He had fallen and he had fallen hard. He deserved nothing more than to be on the outside looking in for the rest of his life. Rumor has it that when the third denial happened, most of the gospels say he went out and wept bitterly. But the story that is actually thought is that he ran to the Garden of Gethsemane, the place where Jesus was just hours before, pouring out his heart for his disciples, praying to God for him, sweating drops of blood, and that Peter fell in that place and wept bitterly, uncontrollably, maybe even on the very spot where the blood of Jesus had fallen and he saw who he was and he saw his mistakes and he saw all the ways that he had failed and he thought his story was over. Wouldn't you? Don't you? How much worse could it have gotten for Peter but the author of his story wasn't done with him yet. Peter got a second chance, a third chance, a fourth chance, a fifth chance to the nth degree. And so do you and so do we, so do the people that you can't stand, the ones you have a hard time with, get chance after chance after chance because we serve a God who even when we are unfaithful, He is faithful because He cannot deny who He is. Remember friends, there is nothing you can do to make God love you less. And there is nothing you can do to make god love you more he loves you fully and completely even when you deny him to his face he remains faithful with arms wide open waiting to receive you back unto himself so for the sake of the gospel let us endure suffering together With each other in this room and with our brothers and sisters around the world, let us help each other remember the realities of who Jesus Christ was and is and let us forever rejoice in the ever-faithful God, the God of revival, who can light up the darkest night. Let us pray. Gracious and loving Heavenly Father, God of revival, who comes into our darkest messes, and brings light and healing and hope, who comes into the places of our doubts and fears and tells us it's okay, you are with us and you love us, who comes into the places of our sins, maybe even the places where we have cursed you and run the other way, where we have chosen to believe that you do not exist, you do not care, you're even there with us in those moments because you are a faithful God It is who you are, and you cannot deny it. May we be a people that believes in the ever-faithful God. May we be grounded in Jesus Christ and the gospel story, so that when we go from this place to where we work and where we hang out and where we sleep at night, and we would be agents of the kingdom of God so we can bring a little of heaven to earth. Thank you for calling us. Thank you. For this church, help us to continue to hold on to your spirit wherever you lead us, to love who you call us to love, to serve who you call us to serve. And even though times may come where we may be chained up, your gospel will spread, and your word is powerful, and it cannot be contained. Help us go forward today in that whatever we do, love well. In the precious and holy name